0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies. My name is Crawford Gribbon, and today I'm delighted to welcome Jonathan Lucadu, who is here to talk about his new book, The Christology of Ignatius of Antioch just published by Cascade Books at the end of 2023. Jonathan, it's great to have you back in the show. It's been a couple of years since you were here before to talk about your, your last book, I think, uh, A Commentary in the Epistle of Barnabas, um, which was a, a fascinating book and a great discussion. Oh, well, thank you. And thanks very much for having me back on. It's, it's great to be able to talk to you again. Thanks, Jonathan. Before we jump into this new book on the Christology of Ignatius of Antioch, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: sure yeah so um i teach uh, in south korea i teach at uh, the presbyterian university and theological seminary in seoul and uh, my my teaching duties are related to the english language so i teach conversation um for Predominantly undergraduate students who are, uh, wanting to learn, and, and then I also teach um some sort of graduate reading and writing courses that allow me to engage more more deeply in theology and in early Christianity, uh, for graduate students.
1: That's great, Jonathan. Now you you're a, you're obviously a very modest scholar because your publication record extends far beyond early Christianity. You've got interest in the Inklings and and other kinds of things as well, um. But this is your second monograph on Ignatius of Antioch, and you've written a lot of articles about Ignatius. You've translated some work about Ignatius too. What's the background to this project in particular? Yeah,
2: um, Ignatius has kind of functioned as a a sort of center point in in my research. Uh, in other ways i'm really not focused as you mentioned yeah so some interest in the inklings um and and some other things uh going on that that i enjoy um but but ignatius always kind of stands at the center uh and i I suppose um what draws me to ignatius uh, and what keeps me interested in this research is just how uh how unique i think he he is uh there's a lot of puzzles in his letters, a lot of things to, to look at and to reflect on. Um, and, and as well, there's a lot of num- uh, there's a number of interesting things going on in Ignatian scholarship. Uh, and so that allows me to um, to sort of stay in touch with people and and to engage with with what's going on. So so I, more than anything, I just like learning about Ignatius and, and like engaging with uh, others who are studying him.
1: So just imagine some of our listeners don't know very much about Ignatius. How would you summarise his life? What do we know about his biography?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, so one of the puzzling things about Ignatius is that we just don't know very much about his life. Um, We can can fill in some gaps, and church history has certainly done that. Um, But in essence, what we know for sure is that we have these letters that are written in his name. Uh, And these letters are purported to have been written as he was being transported as a criminal from Antioch to Rome. Uh, And he wrote them in the middle of that journey, mostly in in Asia Minor, um, which is more or less halfway between uh, Antioch and, and Rome and he wrote these letters expecting to die uh so he's gone down in in christian history as a martyr um and i suppose for for my part i've i've tended to accept at least that much of the story uh and there's a lot of other questions that we could could ask and that get asked in scholarship uh, such as um why was he arrested uh was it um initiated by the romans or was it some sort of problem perhaps within uh, his community of of christians or jesus followers in antioch Uh, we could perhaps also ask uh what he did exactly in antioch He, he refers to himself as a bishop uh but um what did that mean <laughs> uh, for, for his his particular service and his time in, in that city? And, and all of that remains fairly open-ended, I think. So there's a lot of room to debate and to explore and to study.
1: I was fascinated by that aspect of the book because you you, you tell us that there are hints in the letters of unhappiness in that Christian community um, that, that perhaps Ignatius' emphasis upon the authority of the bishop or his demand really that Christians not observe the Eucharist in the absence of a bishop, hinted at some of the problems that might exist.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that's a a, a distinct possibility. Um, and there's a lot of other Ignatian scholars who who emphasise that as well. Um, so yeah, I, I do. I, I that's a possibility. I think that um, that something went wrong for him in in Antioch. Or at least that he had some some difficulties with. His community there. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean that the Romans uh, didn't also give him a hard time, that there might not have been external pressure. But uh, it seems that everything might not have been perfectly at peace whenever Antioch, whenever Ignatius was there in Antioch. And I think maybe that comes out in the letters because, uh, as, as you mentioned rightly, uh, he's quite emphatic uh, that unity needs to characterize the church and, um, and that that unity should center around uh, Jesus and around the Eucharistic practice.
1: And he's not scared of death, is he?
2: He's not, no. In, in fact, um, I think unfairly, but, uh, but just to show how unafraid he is, some scholars have characterized him as being kind of borderline psychotic, uh, or, or unstable, um, because he does, uh, he's, he's utterly unafraid. He almost seems to look forward to it. Um, I, I think he looks forward to it out of a conviction that he's following Jesus and, and he sees his death as an imitation of, of Christ. But, um, it, that lack of fear uh, has, has led some people to think that uh, maybe there is something actually just unstable or, or wrong about him.
1: There's an interesting line or two in his writing where he speaks about death as something that, that will make him truly human. And I suppose that's one of the paradoxes that's typical of Ignatius, isn't it? But what's he getting at when he says that?
2: Yeah, uh, he does write with lots of paradoxes, which um, which uh, often leave me scratching my head. And this is is one of them, I think. Um, I- I'm inclined to think that what he means is um, that in order to be fully human, uh, someone must follow Christ. Someone must follow Jesus, and that entails death. Um, uh, and perhaps uh, perhaps we could make space in certain parts of Ignatius' letters for other ways of, of following Jesus. But in Ignatius' case, what he sees that as is, is literally following Jesus to death, um, presumably in Rome and, and perhaps in the Colosseum. Um, and in that, he sees himself, uh, through death, he sees himself as obtaining obtaining god or obtaining christ and this completes who he was meant to be and so in terms of his understanding of what it means to be human uh, death is central because death unites the believer with god so
1: it's a fascinating biography it raises lots of questions of interpretation historical and and other types of interpretation and it's preserved for us in this in these groups of letters, but one one of the things that you do in the book is to show us how complicated is the textual history of these letters. Could you talk us through that and perhaps tell us why you prefer what's known as the middle recension?
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is one of the problems that uh, that keeps me consistently fascinated with Ignatius. Um, and, and yeah, as you mentioned, there's there's a number of letters that float around in Ignatius' name. Uh, I think if we took the largest count, uh, we could have 17 letters that float around uh, in Ignatius' name. Uh, but um, if, if anyone who's listening happens to pick up a copy of the Apostolic Fathers, which is the, the collection of texts where Ignatius' letters are usually published, um, al- almost any modern edition of the Apostolic Fathers will only have seven letters. Uh, and so scholars have tended to talk in terms of a short and a middle and a long recension, and the long recension, uh, tends it refers to a collection of letters of perhaps 12 or 13 or 17 um, that in general are longer in form than the middle recension and also uh, contain more letters, So, so they're longer. Uh, the shorter recension, as we might expect, contains fewer letters than the middle recension. It only has three, uh, and it's uh, it's shorter. The letters um, compared to the middle recension are abbreviated. And then there's the middle recension. And uh, in this regard, I suppose I am somewhat traditional, um, at least over the last 200 years or so of scholarship. Uh, I, a majority of scholars in that time have have thought that the middle recension is um, authentically Ignatius, that the long recension represents someone else writing later, in Ignatius name and perhaps uh, furthering their own theological purposes, and and the shorter recension, maybe represents an abridgment. Um, That position could perhaps be in the midst of being rethought in scholarship. So I'm, I'm aware that there's some people who are um, hinting or perhaps arguing that the short recension maybe deserves a, a better hearing. And um, and so that'll be interesting to watch how that goes in the next few years. Uh, but for, for now, uh, I've maintained that the middle recension is is uh, the oldest recension and I, I think the genuine letters of Ignatius of Antioch. Hmm.
1: And what do these letters tell us about Christology, which is the main subject of your book?
2: Yeah, uh, so they they tell us, I think, um, a couple of things that that might sound uh, fairly clear uh, to to anyone who's familiar with early Christian Christology, or perhaps for that matter with with later Christologies as well. But um, but that Ignatius puts into somewhat odd terms or, or striking terms. Um, he tells us, for example, that Jesus is divine, and not just, uh, it, there were lots of divine beings in the Greco-Roman world, but Jesus is not just one of those sort of divine or semi-divine beings, but actually, I think he tells us that Ignatius is, is divine in the same way that Israel's God, that God the Father is divine, um, and he says that. Quite explicitly, he uses the Greek word uh, "theos," which uh, means God, um, or is kind of the basic Greek word for for God. Um, and Ignatius reserves the word God only for Jesus and the Father. It it does not refer to any other beings, and so there is this unique and very high element. Uh, Ignatius uses the word God. Um, more often, uh, for Jesus than any other earlier Christian writer. Um, and at the same time, uh, he also refers to Jesus' humanity, and he does so, again, in very striking terms. He's absolutely emphatic that if someone, uh, does not think that Jesus was human, that they should not be included, uh, in the church or, or among the, the group of believers they're they're excluded they're discounted in some way and so um both jesus humanity and jesus divinity uh, are absolutely central for ignatius but he doesn't um he doesn't really reconcile how this is possible he just sets them side by side and so at one point he even refers to the blood of god uh, which is an ex- extremely uh striking uh, perhaps troubling for later theologians uh, a troubling phrase um but it's one that ignatius uses and i think it illustrates well how he um both elevates jesus divinity and elevates jesus humanity that, that both um both are present and neither can be neglected
1: and i suppose this is why you describe ignatius as having one of the highest and one of the lowest Christologies, it goes in both directions, doesn't it?
2: Yes, yeah, I think that's right. Um, he's, he's unapologetic and, and unrelenting in those regards. He, he just sets them side by side, and he expects his audience, I think, to agree.
1: Yeah. Does that tell us something interesting about early Christian theology,
2: that it is content to live with paradox? I think that's right. I think it does. Um, uh, we see a similar phenomenon a little bit later, uh, at least um sorry in the back of my mind I'm aware that there are dates about or, or debates about when Ignatius wrote uh, but on, on my dating a little bit later um, there, there there's a fellow named uh, Melito of of Sardis and he similarly writes with all sorts of paradoxes in his in his writing and um, and then going the other way, perhaps going earlier, uh, I think we could find elements of paradox in the letters of Paul or the Gospel of John. Um, I think early Christians are, um, to varying degrees and in different ways, uh, f- fairly happy with elements of paradox in their th- in their thinking. So these these yeah. letters, whichever recension
1: we prefer these letters of Ignatius are a gold mine of Christological reflection, aren't they? And I think one of the great values of your book is the way in which you work through um, uh, descriptors or designations of Jesus um, and images of Jesus, some of which are very familiar to us as New Testament readers. Others are much less familiar to us uh, and maybe demonstrate something the creativity, theological creativity of Ignatius uh, and his contemporaries. What are some of the most interesting designations of Jesus for you in the Ignatian Corpus?
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. slash nbn50
2: to get 50% off. Yeah. Um, Ooh. Well, um, yeah, as you say, there's a number of, of traditional ones, uh, Lord and God and Christ are all used to describe Jesus. Uh, and that will be familiar to anyone who has perhaps uh, read any, any bit of the new Testament or, or other early Christian writers. Uh, but then yeah, he also refers to Jesus Um, as a star. It's one of the images that he uses. Um, And when he refers to Jesus as a star, uh, he's actually right in the middle of telling us uh, about Jesus' birth and death. Um, And he's emphasizing Jesus' humanity. And then all of a sudden, he begins to tell this kind of story about a star. Um, And I've argued that that star is not just representative of Jesus' birth, but actually it stands for for Jesus himself. And it's another way in which Ignatius tells us who Jesus is. So Jesus is this human being who was, was born. Um, Ignatius identifies him with David. Uh, he died. He is this very human uh, person. And uh, through the star, um, Ignatius also illustrates that there are these um, effects of his birth and his death that uh, are important for the entire cosmos. So it's not just Jesus himself, but the effects of his birth and his death, and I think we can perhaps assume, although Ignatius doesn't say it in this passage, uh, his resurrection, uh, the effects of all of that um, are that uh Death no longer has the same power, that corruption stops, uh, that the effects are uh, universal and global, um, and they extend far beyond uh, Ignatius' own uh, experience in Antioch or, or Jesus' uh, work in, in Palestine. Um, yeah, they, they are universal. Um if I could perhaps just mention one more, uh, Ignatius also refers to Jesus as the archives. Um, and it's this very, uh, in, in that context, he's in this quite polemical mode of argument. He's uh, he's having some trouble, or he's had some trouble with the people that he's writing to. Um, and they seem to be appealing to the Old Testament and they refer to the Old Testament or, or the Jewish scriptures as uh, the archives. And Ignatius' response is that for me, uh, for, for him, uh, Jesus is the archives, um, and what is inviolable or what, is, what cannot be set aside about those archives are um, his appearance, uh, his, his coming in the flesh, and uh, his death and his resurrection, and the faith that's mediated through him. And so I think there, uh, Ignatius is saying that at the center of Jewish scripture um, stands Christ, uh, which is slightly ironic because uh, Ignatius doesn't quote from scripture much, um, but but he still, I think, holds this very much in the center of his thought.
1: So those are fascinating images, Jonathan. <clears throat> when, when Ignatius refers to Jesus as archive, is he suggesting that the hebrew scriptures the old testament reveal jesus or that jesus reveals the hebrew scriptures of the old testament oh, that's an interesting question
2: um i think i think he would uh move the direction uh, i think he would argue that jesus reveals the old testament and that jesus makes sense uh or, or enables uh, believers to to make sense of of the old testament um uh, the one thing that makes me pause about that is, I, I guess, just to clarify, it, I think that's true, that Jesus makes sense of the Old Testament. Um, I, I'm also aware that some have argued that Jesus perhaps replaces the Old Testament or something like that. I I don't think that Ignatius says that, but I, I might be in the minority in that view.
1: That would be quite a bold move for him to make if he did think that, wouldn't it?
2: It would be. Uh, replacement is perhaps too strong, but... It, Denigrates it might be the, maybe the more yeah. dominant, uh, um, or perhaps that Ignatius is, is inept or just didn't know the scriptures very well. Uh, I've tried to argue against those positions, but I do think Jesus reveals the yeah. Old Testament. So,
1: An- yeah. Another image that you dwell on in the book is the image of Jesus as chorus. What's that all
2: about? Yeah, so, um yeah, Jesus becomes almost like a, a choir leader or a dance leader uh, in some of Ignatius' imagery. And uh, he does that, I think, to depict the sort of unity that should be present um, in every church that he writes to. Although he only uses this image a couple of times, um, so yeah, Jesus tends to stand at the center of that image um, and tends to be a kind of mediator between uh, between the Father. And then the rest of the chorus, uh, which is presumably the, the believers that Ignatius is writing to. And so the image becomes uh, inviting, I think, to readers, uh, that Jesus stands at the center and um, and the readers are invited to participate. Um, it's it's an active uh, image, both... Presumably for what Jesus does, but also for how readers ought to react to that image. There's, uh, presumably, if someone is leading you in a dance, you should join in, uh, and so, uh, so I think that, that readers are uh, invited to to imagine themselves, and then that image gets extended uh, at one point to. Um, to almost allude to the bishop, um, so that the bishop takes on a similar kind of role. And so Ignatius does this in a number of ways, but the chorus imagery is one where the bishop stands in, um, in some way, as a representative of, of Jesus or of the Father, and, um, and sh- presumably should thus be followed or obeyed or uh, respected uh, as a result
1: so this maybe raises the the bigger question of the relationship between Ignatius's Christology and his ecclesiology how do the two things correlate
2: yeah I think they correlate pretty closely um and i I suppose in the book I, I try to draw that out uh in three ways let's let's see if I can remember them all here um uh Ignatius um he, he connects Jesus Christology first in, uh or, first and foremost, or at least most, most personally, to his own death. Um, so uh, Jesus is someone who died and was raised, and that resurrection uh, passion story uh, is very much at the center of Ignatius Christology. And as a result, uh, Ignatius and uh, his, his readers as well um, are, are called to follow Jesus. And for Ignatius, that means following him in death. Uh there's also an imitation element, which is quite closely connected to, to martyrdom, but might be expanded uh, in the case of other believers. Um, I do think that sacrifice and and ultimately perhaps death in some form uh, is, is important for how Ignatius understands the Christian life. But it is death that leads somewhere. It's not the death in itself. It is death that, that brings someone into an imitation and a unity with Jesus. And then um, the the third element, and the one that has drawn a lot of attention in Ignatian scholarship is uh, how Ignatius views hierarchy in the church. And so for Ignatius, it's absolutely vital that there are these three levels of hierarchy uh, in the church. Uh, Bishops, elders, and deacons are the traditional English names. but what sometimes gets overlooked in scholarship is just how closely connected that is to Ignatius' understanding of Jesus. Uh, that it's Jesus who, um, uh, who uh, initiates that hierarchy, and and also it's Jesus and the Father, and perhaps the apostles. There's there's different people, different representatives, but um, that that these uh ecclesial leaders represent um and and instantiate in some ways uh jesus um for for the community
1: well jonathan that's fascinating and what a fascinating discussion of such an important book the christology of ignatius of antioch just published by cascade press the end of 2023 uh jonathan you're obviously um a busy writer
2: are you planning any current projects at the moment? You know, I'm still trying to find my my next uh, kind of major project. Um, I, I think uh, at some point I, I hope to write a commentary on Ignatius Letters. Uh, so, so Ignatius will still be this um, central to what I do. And, um, and perhaps there will be some other things along the way as well. But, uh, but Ignatius, I think, will still stand um, very much in the middle of my work. <laughs>
1: Well, that sounds exciting. And maybe we could invite you back to chat about that commentary or some other projects in due course. That would be wonderful. Well, it's been great to speak to you today, Jonathan. Thank you so much for your time. Jonathan Lukadu, author of The Christology of Ignatius of Antioch, just published by Cascade Books at the end of 2023. Thanks to you for tuning in today. And I'll see you next time on the New Books Network. Thanks so much, Crawford. (laughs)